If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the book of John chapter 8. Book of John chapter 8. Now, if you are here visiting and you do not have a Bible, at this time our ushers are going to come and they've got some New Testaments that they will be glad to give to you as uh, a gift uh, from us. And so you just raise your hand and um, they'll be glad to give you one of those. And if you are taking one of those, you will find our text today on page 79. John chapter 8. John chapter 8 this morning. This morning we sit here with Christmas only a few days away. It's generally a time for family, it's a time for gift giving, it's a time for peace on earth and goodwill toward men as we uh, see people and uh, bundled up uh, more than usual with big Santa hats ringing their bells and people dropping coins and sometimes even paper money into their buckets collecting for the poor. Christmas is generally even thought of to be a time of happiness and joy. In fact, I'll have to be honest, when we were singing that Sing We Now of Christmas song, I almost started to do a Hebrew jig down the aisle. But it's, as it's a well-known fact, there's no dancing in Baptist churches, I decided against it. And yet, at its core, what we've just sung is that Christmas is so much more than all of these things. At its essence, it is about the birth of a man named Jesus. And yet, he was more than a man. He wasn't just a man. Think about it. All of human history is divided on his birth. When you read history books, it's either B.C., before Christ, or it's A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Now, I know in recent years that some secular scholars have tried to obliterate that context. And so they've said, well, it's not, uh, we're going to start saying B.C. stands for before the, the common era. We'll change it to B.C.E., and we'll change A.D., the year of our Lord, to A.C.E., after the common era. And I saw one uh, Christian philosopher a couple weeks ago uh, tweet on his uh, Twitter account, I'm fine with B.C.E. and A.C.E. It's before Christ's empire and after Christ's empire. And uh, I, thought, I thought that was good. But Jesus is not just an important historical figure. The Bible says He is the very Savior of the world. Even then, that's not just something that people say about Jesus. This is something that Jesus claimed for Himself. This is something that Jesus Himself taught about why He had come. Jesus claimed to be more than a man, more than a good teacher, more than a moral example to follow. And this morning, we want to look at a scene from the life of Jesus where He shows Himself to be the light of the world. Specifically, he will say that he came to reveal God and provide the means by which people who deserve judgment from God can find peace with God. And so I would encourage you to follow along as we look to John chapter 8 this morning. We will begin reading in verse 12. <coughs> Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about him. 
They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says I am going where you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, but I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as my Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. This is the Word of God. From what Jesus says here, we want to understand now what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. And this involves understanding three things this morning, three things. First of all, Jesus brings God's light to spiritual darkness. Jesus brings God's light to spiritual darkness. It's important that we understand that this statement about Jesus, this statement from Jesus where he says, I am the light of the world, this comes in a specific context. You know, Jesus is not like a magic eight ball where you say, uh, who should I marry? And you, and you shake up the Bible and you throw it open and a, and a verse pops out and you answer it. That's, that's not the way the Bible's written. That's not the way Jesus taught. Everything has got a context in which it's coming. It's got a situation in which Jesus is teaching. And if you've been reading through John's gospel, you will know that ever since chapter seven, Jesus has been in the temple teaching God's people there. Specifically, Jesus has come to Jerusalem during this time and to the temple because it was the time of the, Jew, the Jewish Feast of Booths or sometimes called the Feast of the Tabernacles. They had to understand this was a major event in the life of God's people, Israel, at that time. Though the Jewish people were, sp- were spread out all over the area, there were three times during the year where they would all converge back on Jerusalem. Uh, the events, uh, the, the Feast of Pentecost, Passover, and this time here, Tabernacles. And some historians say that the population of Jerusalem actually swelled to four times its normal size during these festivals. But what was it all about? What's this Feast of the Tabernacles about? Well, if you know the story of Israel, if you know the story of the nation, then you will know that uh, because of their disobedience to God, even after agreeing to do all that he would say that that he would tell them to do, uh, God punished them by, by sending them into the wilderness for 40 years. Instead of going straight to and arriving in and taking possession of the promised land, God's people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And yet even then God was merciful. Because God provided for His people during that time. He guided them uh, by, uh, by His own direction. He led them by a pillar of cloud which they could observe during the day and a pillar of fire which they could observe by night. God also protected them from harm during those years in the wilderness, empowering them sometimes for battle, giving them the victory, and other times simply warding off harm before it came, shunting it away off into somebody else or scaring the, the offenders off. He also provided for them. The wilderness sounds just like, or was, just like what it sounds like. It was a wilderness. It was the desert. It was barren. And yet God ensured they had meat and bread and water all 40 
years. And now every year during this time, the Jews would set aside this time to remember what God had done for them in the wilderness. And I have to say, part of me wishes I was a Jewish kid during this time because uh, they would have had the most fun in the world. You see, the families would have set up these little ramshackle tents, just this, you know, some sticks and some big palm leaves and things. And a lot of times they would stick them up on the roofs of their house and they would dwell in there for the week, remembering that their forefathers or ancestors dwelt in tents for 40 years. Now you can imagine... You told your kids, we're going to build a little tent and go up on the roof for the week and spend the night there. I mean, they would be like, bang night, you know. I mean, great, you know. Uh, but more than that, you get to eat all kinds of different foods, and, and, and it, was, it was just a, a, a celebratory atmosphere going on during this time. But in some ways, for our purposes, more important than all of that, the temple itself was set up in a festive array for this occasion. Candles, lights, lamps were all lit up in the outer court of the temple. But hundreds, at least possibly thousands of lights were illuminated. Now you have to understand, when, when you see, uh, actually you can even see this now, there's actually a, a Muslim mosque that sits there, called, it's called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, the big gold dome you see in pictures sometimes of Jerusalem, it, it, it's a high point in the city of Jerusalem. The temple was set up on that high point so that as you're, as you're walking in, perhaps from Bethlehem, the four or five miles to get to uh, Jerusalem, at nighttime, all of these candles will be lit up and they are sitting up on the hill. You would see this, this light emanating from the, from the temple itself. You would see this illumination covering all of the city coming from the temple. And now here's Jesus. And they're in the midst of this festival. Perhaps the festival is even winding down. Perhaps it's at the end. We know he comes there in the middle of the festival. Perhaps all the lights have gone out. We don't know. But here is Jesus in the midst of this festival of lights, the celebration of the tabernacle and this glory emanating from the temple. And Jesus steps up with, I can only imagine a loud voice, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, we may be tempted to think here that he's just talking about direction. People say, well, you know, it's a, it's a light to my path. It, it leads me in the right way to go. But it's so much more what Jesus is claiming for himself here. For God's temple represented knowing God himself. It represented seeing his glory in the salvation of his people from their sins. It represented the revealing of God's word which illuminates the heart, not just for life direction but for righteousness. And now Jesus is saying that divine light that you cherish so much that you have represented physically by all these lamps and lanterns and candles, now I have come and I am that light in its truest, fullest form. I am the one who cuts into the darkness, revealing it, scattering it, and bringing life to those that are in it. Darkness is almost universally in every culture it is a symbolism for things we don't like, for something negative, for something bad. No one likes being in the dark, okay? Even now, my kids, we don't like the dark, okay? And it's something we, we understand that, right? Um, one, of the, one of the times that I most did not like being in the dark, uh, our last trip when we took to Africa last year, we were coming in at, at a different time because we missed our connecting flight because there had been a bomb scare in Paris. And so we're coming in and it's literally, it's literally uh, you know, around uh, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And if you come into, say, Detroit or if you come into where I'm from, Cincinnati, uh, the place is all, the city, all lit up. So you can see, oh, look, there's the city, you know, and you're coming in and everything. This is not the case in, in West Africa, okay? I mean, it's, you know, it's almost a third world country out there. So, so, so the pilot says we'll be making our descent, and I'm looking out the window saying, what are we descending to? 
You know, what, what's out there? You know, I mean, there, there's nothing. And then, you know, the, 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 the uh, flight attendants are, are, are coming. They're saying, you know, put your seat up and buckle and stuff. And I'm still looking out there and saying, it's just dark. What, what are we, you know? And then the plane begins to bank and make this. And I'm thinking, where are we going? What's down there? There's nothing. It was just total darkness out there. And thankfully, the pilots knew what they were doing because we landed safely. Okay? But no one did not like being in the dark. At least I didn't. It was a very unpleasant feeling. But when the Bible talks about darkness, it's not just like having your eyes closed kind of darkness. In fact, the physical darkness of this world points to a much deeper spiritual darkness that doesn't involve an experience of the eyes, but an experience of the soul. The Bible says that because of sin, humanity exists in spiritual darkness. This spiritual darkness is a blindness to who God is and to having a relationship with Him. It springs from the sinfulness of our hearts and that sin cuts us off from a right relationship with Him. It causes us to live in ignorance of God and His ways. And the result is that we stand ready to receive God's judgment of everlasting spiritual death. But just as He said to those listening to the first time, so Jesus says to us today, I am the light of the world. Whoever would follow me will no longer be in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus has come into the sinful darkness of this world, shining the light of God's salvation, so that all who would look at that light, all who would embrace that light and accept it, they will be freed from sin and be given the ability to know God, to relate to Him, to experience life with God and to pursue righteousness and not sin. This is what Jesus is claiming about himself. And from our passage, we see that Jesus comes claiming this, speaking with God's approval. This is the second thing that we want to see from our text this morning. That is, Jesus speaks with God's approval. Jesus just said to the crowds, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the religious leaders of that day immediately come back at him and say, well, you're just bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything that Jesus just said? Well, in certain cases, Jewish law required that two witnesses be brought to testify at, uh, during a legal case and give their testimony. And the Jewish leaders are saying, because you're coming by yourself, making this claim about yourself, by yourself, it's only one witness, and so therefore uh, there's no way to know if what you're saying is true. In fact, it's, it's probably not true. Now, what's the problem with that? They're not in court. There's no legal case going on. There's no reason to, to require uh, this, this testimony. So why are they doing this? Well, frankly, it's because they don't want to hear who Jesus is. They, 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 Jesus at this point has already become a nuisance to them. He's rocking the boat. He's saying things that they don't want to hear. He's presenting God in such a way that, that they don't like. And so they're just they're trying to discredit him and to, to, to move him on and to, to get him out. This, this failed attempt ultimately to silence Jesus shows that really what it's all about is the unbelief in their heart. It's an excuse. It's, the, it's an excuse to from our perspective, from Jesus' perspective, to stay in the darkness. The, the light has begun to shine and say, oh, it's too bright. I, we don't want any of that. That's, that. that's not what I want. We'll just stay in the darkness. We'll just, let's just stay in the darkness. This is what we like. This is what's comfortable. This is our world here. So, 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 uh, so you need two witnesses, and you're only one, so get out. We don't want to listen to you anymore. That's what's ultimately going on here. But you notice Jesus... 
he doesn't, he doesn't let it go. He doesn't leave it at that. Instead, he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. When Jesus said that he was the light of the world, he was saying, I am the radiance of the glory of God. And the Pharisees have said, oh yeah, right, talk is cheap, prove it. The radiance of the glory of God, the light of the world, like coming from the temple. Who are you to say that? And Jesus' answer, well, frankly, his answer is, is pretty phenomenal. You know, think about it like this. If I were to stand here this morning and I were to tell you, Lebanon, Ohio is one of the greatest cities in southern Ohio in which to live. First of all, some of you would say, what do I care about Buckeyes, all right? And, uh, you know, we, we try to eat those on the football field, all right? I, I get that, but just bear with me for, for a second. Uh, uh, you, you know, what you're going to say is, what, what gives you the right to make that claim? Well, some of this, I grew up in Lebanon, Ohio. I, I grew up in a couple different towns, but that's where uh, we, we kind of finished uh, out my, uh, my school years, and I, uh, you know, went from being a snotty-nosed brat to something of a young man, and, uh, and, and you know... Uh, my, my experience gives me the authority to say, this is true. This is true. I know about this area. I've lived there. I've experienced life there. And so I can make this kind of claim. Now do you understand what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I've seen the glory of God firsthand. I came from heaven and I'm going back there soon. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. The very presence of God is my home. So I know what I'm talking about when I talk about the glory of God. When I talk about light, spiritual light emanating into a dark and sinful world. This is my hometown. This is where I'm from. And Jesus goes on and he says, look, this is your problem. This is why you can't see who I am, why you don't want to see who I am. You judge things by an earthly perspective. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I who judge alone, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, what is this idea of the flesh? Now, most of us are going to think, you know, it's something we, we'd like to have a little bit less of, maybe. But the, the Bible, flesh is, is a theological term. Yes, it speaks to humanity. It speaks to, to who we are uh, as people, but it goes deeper than that. It speaks to our, our frailty, our weakness as humans, specifically our sinfulness as humans. So Jesus is saying these people are judging according to the flesh. What he is saying is that they're making judgments according to a criteria of sinful human standards in a sinful fallen world. Their thinking is corrupted and tainted by their sinful experience in this life. Now think about that for a minute. So think about what's going on. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the creator of all things we're told in the first chapter of this gospel, He's made all things, including the very men that are standing in front of him. And he is the one under the microscope by them. He is the one on trial by them. He is the one having to live up to their standards and their criteria. And what does Jesus say? I, I judge no one. Now understand that he's not making an absolute statement there because just later on in a few verses he says, I have many things to judge. What he is saying is, I don't judge anyone the way you judge them. I don't judge anyone according to the sinful human standards that you Pharisees are judging according to. I don't judge according to what I see with selfish motives so I can either mark someone up in my opinion or mark someone down in my opinion. 
Instead, he says, the judgments that I make are from God's perspective. He says, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me also bears witness about me. Jesus is not only an expert witness about the things of God because he's dwelt in heaven, but more than that, more than that, his testimony is true because God the Father himself bears witness that it is true. God in heaven says everything that Jesus says is true. In fact, I am the one who sent him to say these things. He has come from me. I've sent him into the world. So everything that he says is just as if I myself have said it. But they still don't get it. And, and to, some, to some degree, you have to love their response. Jesus says, the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And immediately they come back with, where's your father? You know, it is funny. And sad all at the same time. Because immediately, again, they're thinking human terms. And they're saying, oh, if your dad is here, uh, let him come and give his testimony to them. Let him come and bear witness about you. The assumption here is, is that Jesus can only be just a man like them. Their spiritual darkness blinds them to the reality of who Jesus is. They can only conceive of him as being a man, not the God-man, not God become flesh. So this prompts Jesus to say, you know neither me nor my father, for if you knew me, you would know my father also. You know, ever since Jesus came into the world almost 2,000 years ago, people have had problems with his teachings. People have not liked what he said, not liked what he's done, and so they have tried to judge him according to their thoughts to their judgments, to their criteria, just like the Pharisees are doing here. In fact, just in the last hundred years, we see uh, almost an explosion of this kind of judgments against God. In the early 1900s, there was a group of people uh, who we identify as so-called Christian humanists. And their whole point was to say, our experience in life has discounted the supernatural. We are men and women of science. If it's not something that we can put in a test tube and boil up or put under a microscope and, a microscope and examine or, or see by virtue of, of experimentation, then it's not real. And therefore, what Jesus claims about himself can't be real because there's no such thing as the supernatural. They rejected Jesus out of their perspective. Of course, other people don't reject him outright. They get a little more tricky with it. They decide to remake Jesus in their own image, to, to, to take and to twist and to pick and choose and say, well, he probably said this and he probably didn't really say that. And so suddenly their values and, and their desires and their ambitions are suddenly Jesus' desires and his ambitions. And so you have the communist who demanded a class warfare Jesus, the capitalist who demanded a free market Jesus, the racist who demanded an ethnocentric Jesus, the patriots who demanded a nationalistic Jesus. Even today, you look in magazines or uh, come across people on the net and you'll see these Hollywood actors who, as far as you knew, have absolutely, absolutely nothing to do with religion. And they've got this big t-shirt with a picture of, of Jesus that says, Jesus is my homeboy. And I'm thinking, Really? What Jesus is that? Because Jesus I know ain't your homeboy. I mean, I've, I've seen the way you talked in your movies. I've seen the way you've treated your spouse in real life. And I don't think Jesus would be real happy about that. I don't think he's coming up in your posse to your defense. Not going to happen. What have they done? They've taken this idea of Jesus that they like. And they've said, oh yeah, that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. What are they doing? They're judging according to the flesh. 
They're allowing their own spiritual darkness to, to, to infiltrate and to influence and say this is who Jesus is. But the truth is we can't reject Jesus nor can we tinker with him and make him into what we want to be. We cannot re- remake him in our own image according to our own perspective because what Jesus says is true and God verifies it. God himself says what he says in its totality is true. And if we cannot accept who Jesus is the way we find him in the pages of the New Testament, if we find it hard to accept what he says, then it reveals a deeper problem in our lives. We don't know God. We may think we know God. We may think we're okay with God. But Jesus says, if you don't know me, you don't know him. If you don't accept me, then you've not accepted him. That's the bad news. But the good news that Jesus brings The good news that should be at the very heart of this Christmas season is that Jesus came to save sinners by God's authority. This is the third and final thing we'll see this morning, that Jesus saves sinners by God's authority. Again, Jesus says to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. The going away that Jesus is talking about here is the cross and resurrection by which he will return back to God the Father in heaven. And when he says, you will seek me, but you will die in your sin, the me there that he's talking about is is his, his office as Messiah. You see, that's what the Pharisees were looking for. They're looking for a Messiah. But their idea of what Messiah should be is not what God has said the Messiah is going to be. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, if you, if you don't come to me, you're going to keep looking for me, but you're not going to find me because you have this false idea of who I am and you're never going to find anybody that makes that criteria. And the result is you're never going to find the Messiah you're looking for. You will have missed me, the real Messiah, and so you're going to die in your sins. And ultimately, this is the fate of all who reject Jesus. They die in their sins and are unable to enter into heaven with Jesus himself. Now, at the end of the day, if this is how we die, there is no escape from that judgment. There is no escape from that punishment, from that penalty for our lack of belief. And you know, in a human court, sometimes we can get off. Sometimes we can be completely guilty of whatever crimes that that they say we are, but we can get off. A, because we just run. We just run. They, they don't find us, they, 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 and, and, and so we never get put on trial. Sometimes we don't leave enough evidence behind for them to actually make a case stick. The cop may know we've done it. He may feel it in his bones that we're guilty, but he can't prove it. Other times they have the evidence. They put us on trial, and what do we do? We lawyer up with someone who knows how to play the system, and they find the, the smallest technicalities and the loopholes, and they get us off by something like reasonable doubt. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, that our, our legal system is, is, is horrible. I'm not. Probably put up against all the others in the world, it's the best, even with its problems. But what I'm saying is simply this. God's judgment is not anything like human judgment. If you die in your sins, there is no escape. There is no lawyering up. There is no legal loopholes. There is no running away from the Almighty. You will die in your sins forever. That's the judgment of God for, for how we live our life. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There is a way to escape that judgment. It's not after death. It's now in life. It's by trusting in Jesus. And understand this. Sometimes we get confused on this. We're not sent to hell for rejecting Jesus. We, We need to understand that. We're not sent to hell for rejecting Jesus. We are sent to hell because we're sinners and we rebel against God. 
We have a sinful heart that produces a, the, the fruit of that, that evil sin that comes. So when we lie, cheat, and steal, guess what happens? That is evidence of the fact that we have a sinful heart, and it's for those things by which we are sent to hell. But here's the thing. If we don't reject Jesus, if we accept Jesus, then God says, you will escape the judgment. My wrath will not fall upon you because you will not be dying in your sins. You will be dying in the life that I have given you, the spiritual life that comes by embracing Jesus as the light of the world. In verses 22 through 23, he tells this confused crowd that they cannot go with him where he is going because of this sinful world. Their lives are steeped in it because they have sinful hearts. But there's no, there's no sin in Jesus. He's not from this sinful world. He may be in this world, but he's not of this world. He is of the glory of heaven, perfect and sinless. And so they say, what is he, is he going to kill himself? Is that why we can't follow him? And he says, you're from below, but I am from above. I told you, verse 24, you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am He. And there it is. You will die in your sins unless you believe in Jesus. Unless you believe that He is all that God says He is. Unless you believe He is the light of the world. Now why is belief in Jesus necessary for salvation? Jesus goes on Himself to tell us. In verse 28, He says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. First, Jesus stands in direct contrast to every other person who has ever lived in that He always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. How would you like to live that kind of a life? Everything that comes out of your mouth, pleasing to God. Every action that you do, that you engage in, from the moment you you roll out of bed and grab your coffee in the morning, pleasing to God. Every, Every thought, every stray thing that shoots through your mind, pleasing to God. How would you like that? I would love it because I realize that's not how I live my life. Far from it, sad to say. And yet that's the kind of life Jesus lived. From the moment he got up to the moment he went to bed and all the time in the middle he's asleep. Everything pleasing to God. Yet we are like that. We are sinful and rebellious and we do not seek what God wants. We seek out what we want. And yet that's not Jesus. He says, I am perfectly obedient to the Father. That makes him uniquely suited to be the Savior of humanity because he is like us. He's fully human and yet he's not like us. He is righteous. And so he says, because of this, I am able to be lifted up before God. Now, Jesus is not clear here what he means when he says, when you see me lifted up. But frankly, he doesn't have to because he's already been clear about it back in John chapter 3. And so if you've been reading through, uh, you'll say, oh yeah, he's already mentioned this. What does he say back in John chapter 3? He says this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is alluding to another story in Israel's history here. Back in the Old Testament, during these wilderness wanderings that they're celebrating, uh, during this, this festival of tabernacles, there was a time, uh, well, let me go back, lots of that time, though God was providing for Israel, they were grumbling against Him. They were murmuring, saying, why is it like this? And why is it like... And it's like, dude, don't you realize God could have just wiped you out and been done with it? And He's allowed you to live out the rest of your life and He's been providing things for you? But they continue to grumble. And sometimes God sent judgment for that grumbling. And one such time we read about in Numbers 21. 
The people, Moses writes, spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, they see what's going down, and they realize, we didn't just fall into the snake pit here. God has done this. And so they realize they've sinned. They call out to God saying, we we are sorry for our sins. How can we be saved? And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so we're told Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. That bronze serpent was made as a a focal point for the people's faith that God would forgive them. They looked in faith to the serpent trusting God would heal them and keep them from death. And now Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying just like death was coming upon everyone in the Israelite camp, so now death is coming upon the whole world. We are in spiritual darkness and judgment is coming. Nevertheless, just as the serpent was lifted up, so now I am about to be lifted up on a Roman cross. And just how people were physically saved in their life from God's judgment by looking at that bronze serpent, so now spiritually anyone who looks at me will be saved from the judgment to come. They will not die in their sins. They will not die facing God's judgment and His holy wrath. Instead, they will have the light that gives spiritual life. They will have me. Jesus says salvation is possible because I am offering up my life as a sacrifice for sins on the cross. Jesus, he satisfied God's full and righteous fury against his people's sins. So that when now that Jesus has been raised back to life, he did not remain dead. When people turn to look in him in faith and they trust that he is the Savior, God forgives them of their sins. I've read that the city of London has a geographical center called Charing Cross. And uh, it's literally a, a, a cross pattern that's laid out in the very, uh, uh, the very heart of that city. And it's been said that from Charing Cross you can find yourself anywhere to London. It's kind of a focal point that sets you off in the right direction wherever you're going. And as I was reading, preparing for the sermon, I read about a little boy once who was lost. And he came up to one of the British policemen and he was... He was crying, saying he couldn't find his way home. And the policeman knelt down and was wiping his eyes away. And he said, do you, want me, do you want me to take you home? Tell me where you live. And the boy said, I don't know. But if you just take me to the cross, I will be able to find my way home. This morning, this morning at Christmas Sunday, we, we see the manger. We see the manger and we rejoice like Simeon. But understand, the manger is there to point us to the cross. And if we go to the cross, if we believe what Jesus said, then we will have life and forgiveness and salvation. This section ends by John telling us, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. This morning, it's it's not enough just to look at the baby and think, that's nice. That's nice that God would do that for people. No, it's something that we have to acquire by faith. You're not born into salvation. You don't just fall backwards into it. It's not for all of humanity. The salvation that God offers is for all those who would turn away from sin and look to Jesus in faith, trusting that He was God in the flesh, trusting that He died paying the penalty for our sins, trusting that He alone can make us right before God. And Jesus Himself makes the promise when we trust in Him in that way, we will have life and we will have joy. Father, we are thankful for your son. We're thankful for his coming 
into this world to give life. Father, we pray this morning that you will encourage our hearts by the salvation that we have in him. God, I pray this morning that if there is someone that is here and that they don't have life, that they are still on their way to dying in their sins, that God, you would, Father, shine the light of your love into their heart. Father, you would send their spirit to open their eyes to see the truthfulness of who Jesus is and the good news that there is salvation and life in him and that, Father, you would draw them to yourself that they might believe. Father, this morning we pray. God, in every way, that Jesus would be exalted in our lives, whether as we continue to live in joyful faith in Him or whether for the first time someone moves from darkness to light. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.